I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you tuned in today to unapologetically, unapologetically, if I can say it, progressive KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, Delighted to have you in with us in this hour. In this month of March 1861, Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated as our 16th president. Just days after his inauguration, literally days after, the Confederate Congress adopts its constitution declaring the sovereignty of states and forbids the passage of any bill which would outlaw slavery. Today, a story of war and peace, race and reconciliation, the revelatory history of Abraham Lincoln's plan to secure a just and lasting peace after the Civil War. Please be joined now by CNN senior political analyst and anchor. Uh, and author of the book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, John Avalon. John, good to have you on. How are you, sir? It's an honor to join you, Tavis. Thank you. My great delight to have you, sir. Glad we got the hour, a lot to unpack. Let me start with this, though, John, not to throw you off, uh, but you're a reporter, so you can handle this. In, in prepping for our conversation about Lincoln today, I was actually doing some research and uh, didn't quite realize this, but on February 25, 1863, so that's two years after his inauguration, Lincoln signed the National Currency Act into law. The act established the office of the Comptroller of the Currency, charged with the responsibility for organizing and administering a system of nationally charted banks and a uniform national currency. In June of 1864, a year later, the legislation underwent substantial amendment and became known as the National Bank Act. You see where I'm going here, John, don't you? Modified and supplemented over the years, the National Bank Act continues to provide the basic governing framework for the national banking system today. So the basic governing framework for our banking system was instituted by a guy named Abraham Lincoln. I lead into our conversation by asking all that said what Abraham Lincoln would make of the fine mess we've gotten ourselves in right about now with our banking system, John Avalon. Thank you, Tavis. Um, deep cut there, but a really important one, because so many of the things, the innovations that we take for granted today date to President Lincoln and, and the Civil War. Um, look, you know, runs on banks, yep. speculative blanks, banks, people talking uh, as speculators rather than investors is a problem, you know, as old as, old as, as the Republic. And, and the point of putting some regulation on it is to make, them, make it a little more, diff, little more difficult for them to fleece average folks and uh, and to treat investments like gambling as opposed to, you know, actually what they're supposed to be, accruing value over time by investing in real companies. So, mm-hmm. you know, wh- whether you take it, those actions by Lincoln, other things like building the Transcontinental Railroad, um, you know, his first federal income tax in the context of the war, his his economic plan was very much about investing to stitch together the country and to try to protect people from these sort of rapacious con artists who every once in a while either get involved in, in, in big money or just banks that go under because they've gotten over their skis. Yeah. So he'd recognize this problem, and he'd say that's why we put the regulation in place. Time to start enforcing it. Yep. One last question about that to your point about enforcing it. Um, in your reporting and in your commentary on CNN and beyond, um, what's your sense of the nervousness um, that fellow citizens seems to have seem to have about this banking industry? We talked earlier about Fresh Republic being shored up to the tune of $30 billion by Chase and others, so it didn't go under. Um, so President Biden's comments, uh, Janet Yellen's comments notwithstanding, my sense is that people are still a little bit nervous about this banking system. That's my sense. What's your read on it? Look, I, I think, you know, what's the old line about, you know, keeping a cool head when everyone around you is losing theirs? Yeah. I, I think that's essential. 
Um, you know, in the case of the Silicon Valley Bank, um, th- this is a bank that got real overlevered and primarily was, you know, a, a bank for, for, for venture capital and other folks from Silicon Valley. It's not, a, a, for the most part, a mom-and-pop bank. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the key thing here um, is to make sure that individual accounts um, in banks um, are stabilized, are safe and secure. There's no reason um, that we should have a broader contagion. It's, it's smart to shore up a bank like First Republic um, that, that isn't the same kind of bank as Silicon Valley. But, but the, you know, generally, if you want to take a big step back, history would tell you that when people are panicking is a good time to make investments. Um, don't, don't get ahead of what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but don't panic. Panicking is the worst thing you can do in life and in the economy. If you're in a smaller bank, um, that seems a little rickety, you might want to reconsider that. On the other hand, there are a lot of community banks that do a lot of great good for communities. So, so don't start pulling your money out of them. Pay attention to what's going on with your institution. Um, and and I, I think walk in that line so the taxpayers aren't just bailing out people who are being a little too free and easy, mm-hmm. um, you know, socializing losses and privatizing gains, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's a line to walk, and I think Biden and Yellen are trying to do that. Yep. Um, thank you for uh, indulging those questions about Lincoln and the banking system. I just didn't want to start the conversation without uh, drawing attention to the fact that it was Abraham Lincoln who put this uh, basic framework in place. And uh, How about that? Right? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I just I didn't realize that until I was, uh, again, prepping for our conversation. Um, research is, uh, is, is fundamental, <laughs> so it, it mm-hmm. matters. Um, let, let me pivot now um, to, to the book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, and spend the balance of our hour talking about that. Let me just say this, and this won't surprise you, of course. Uh, there's a reason why Lincoln is on everybody's list of, uh, of our greatest presidents. Um, and there's a reason, then, why there are books uh, perennially written about Abraham Lincoln. You would think that at one point uh, we'd cover everything, but he seems to be an inexhaustible subject. And so there are always, always these books that come out about Abraham Lincoln. What I liked about yours, what got my attention about it, John, was that most of the books about his presidency or pre-presidency, his life, um, or, of course, the Civil War. Many, many books written about the Civil War. Yours takes a different tact. What you're focusing on is Lincoln's plan, as I said moments ago, to secure a just and lasting peace after the Civil War. So this is a vision, as we know, that's inspired other presidents, including peacemakers like Mandela and, and Gandhi and even my guy, MLK. Um, so th- there's a lot to unpack in this hour, and I'm glad we got some time here. But let me just start with a broad question and we'll narrow as we move through this hour. In this book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, what's the major story you're trying to draw our attention to about Abraham Lincoln? Thanks for that. Um, this is about Lincoln's plan to win the peace after winning the war. Lincoln understood that, especially in a civil war, you need to find a way to live together again. And he, he didn't have a precedent to draw on. So I'm focused on the last six weeks of his life, from March 4th, 1865, when he offers that second inaugural, mm-hmm. um, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Um, and tracing his words and actions and how he was developing a really concrete plan to win the peace problem that no one else has really tackled in that same way before, and then is assassinated five days after Appomattox, never gets to flesh it out. And that's why no one had written this book before. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me we focus a lot on the strategies and tactics of war, and not enough on the strategies and tactics of winning peace. And that's what interests me, not only that question of how you win a peace, which is perennial, but it's applied history. I mean, I'm interested in useful wisdom, uh, and they're great stories to be told. Uh, but, but how he invents a reconciling style of leadership 
that continues to inspire across the generations and proves its effectiveness uh, when it's finally implemented after the Second World War is a fascinating story, and it, it hadn't been told. Well, it's been told now, and we're going to interrogate it as we move through this hour. Uh, you heard John Avalon say a moment ago that it's really about uh, dissecting the strategies and tactics for winning the peace. You've heard many times on this program and on this station, uh, as John, again, said moments ago, that we spent so much time talking about war, indeed the war that we are, uh, the proxy war, as it were, we're in right now with Russia over uh, Ukraine. Uh, but we don't spend enough time talking about how we win the peace. As I said moments ago, Mandela, Gandhi, and no less than MLK uh, took pointers from Lincoln in this regard about how to win the peace. And we'll talk about that and a great deal more as we move through this hour with CNN senior political analyst and anchor and author of the book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. You're listening to John Avalon right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to John Avalon of CNN and author of the book Lincoln and the Fight for Peace on KBLA Talk 1580. Just getting started really in this conversation about the strategies and tactics for winning the peace that Lincoln came up with. Uh, uh, you heard John say moments ago, didn't get a chance to actually implement all of this given his assassination. Um, but I, I want to uh, give Don, uh, John some canvas here to paint. Again, we've got the hour, so um, <laughs> this is not one of those four-minute CNN segments. We can stretch out here a little bit, John Avalon. I love so, it. <laughs> so l- let me start with this. Um, set the scene for me. We're talking about uh, his plan to secure a just and lasting peace after the Civil War, but back up a bit before the, the war ends and give me a sense of what Lincoln is up against. Lincoln is, is confronting a problem without precedent, really, in human history. There there'd never been a civil war on this scale before. And people forget, you know, uh, America is the sole, you know, constitutional democracy on the planet at that time. Um, so this was very much a test of whether the people could rule themselves. All the aristocrats around the world, all the autocrats were saying, see, we told you so, they're going to implode. So he was defending democracy. He was also fighting to defend liberty, mm. right? Four and a half million slaves being held in the South. And, and then he was trying to promote the idea that you have to, you don't really win a war unless you win the peace. And that was his, his key insight. Um, he knew that he had to rise above that normal cycle of, of reaction and desire for revenge in a war. And so he had to really draw on his character on the deepest levels. And I'll tell you, you know, History teaches us that character is the single most important quality in a president, mm-hmm. in any person, I'd say, but especially a president. And he's a guy who's defined by empathy and honesty and humor and humility. He is very human. He's very flawed. He's in a difficult marriage. He uses humor as a way of self-medication because he's frequently depressed, facing the long odds. Um, and he goes into the presidency without any executive experience, without any military experience. Everybody thinks he's going to fail. He's representing an upstart third party um, dedicated to stopping the expansion of slavery. Uh, the Republican Party was only six years old when he's elected. And so he's facing long odds. Um, but he's got a depth of character and a native intelligence, no formal schooling, but, but a, a hard-won smarts that he's able to draw on and pull together the broadest canvas, as you say, of, of how you win a peace. And his basic prescription is unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. 
Mm. Um, you gotta, you gotta have a hard war. You got the other team, the other side's got to know they've been defeated. They need to accept the fact they've been defeated. But then you can, you can lift them back up as long as you deal with the root causes of the war. You know, he refused opportunities to, to have a, a, a ceasefire. He said no ceasefire before surrender. Why? Mm. Because he thought there'd be backsliding on ending slavery. And he said, no man desires peace more than I, but I'm unwilling to accept a peace if it's achieved on such a grounds that it will only guarantee future war. So he was very focused on that. He had to remove the original sin of slavery from America, and, and the war was the opportunity to do that. And without that, he felt the war would never end. Mm. A, few, a few things uh, in need of interrogating, I think. Uh, number one, um, I, I get it, but I want you just to unpack it a bit more. When you say it, it's a great phrase. When you say that Lincoln understood that if he didn't uh, win, uh, there's, there's really no winning the war if you don't win the peace. Unpack that notion for me. Sure. So <clears throat> this is the idea that if, if most wars tend to uh, still smolder after the fight on the battlefield is fought, right. there's anger, there's resentment, there's bitterness. And unless you bring people in to a shared investment, in the future, if you remove the root causes of the war, but treat them with enough dignity that they see a future living together, um, then that's a way to stop the conflict from reigniting. And by the way, you know, there are all sorts of schools of U.S. history that would suggest that, you know, from the lost cause mythology and other ways, the way that we didn't win the peace ultimately, and that resulted in Jim Crow and segregation for mm -hmm. a century. You know, that's just an illustration of how critical it is to take that, that second step really fully, with both feet. Um, but, but he basically understood that if you don't win the peace, if you don't find a way to reconcile and reunite um, or remove and remove the root cause of the war, which is slavery, simple, nothing else, no matter what anybody else says, South convinced themselves they were fighting for constitutional liberty and all that kind of nonsense, mm -hmm. um, well, you're just going to get more war. And that, that's what winning the peace is all about, mm -hmm. finally reconciling and stopping that cycle of violence. Yeah. You um, ascribed at least four, um, by my recollection, at least four uh, character traits to Lincoln. You said moments ago, and I think you're right, that character is the most important thing uh, in selecting a president, for that matter, the most important thing in, in the lives that we live and the legacies that we're living, that we live lives of, 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 of character. But you, and speaking of Lincoln, mentioned his empathy, you talk about his depression, his humor, and his honesty. There are two of those things I want to sort of uh, unpack. Uh, and I want to start with, with, with empathy, uh, because it seems to me that with regard to many of our politicians these days, and I make a distinction, John, it's just me, between politicians and public servants. They can be the mm -hmm. same thing. They oftentimes are not. <laughs> I still think mm -hmm. that public service is a noble profession. We have too many politicians, not enough public servants, certainly not enough what I would call servant leaders, another conversation for another time. But it seems to me that if one is a true public servant, if one is going to be a servant leader, then one has to have empathy, not sympathy, two different things, as you well know. Uh, but I, but I'm, I'm curious as to what you learned about uh, the underpinnings, if I can put it that way, of Lincoln's empathy. It, it, empathy is, is such a key quality, and it's the one that's most difficult. I mean, let's be honest. I think our empathy has been strained in our own time. Mm -hmm. um, something we've got to work on, because it, it, it can be so easy you know, to meet hate with hate. Mm -hmm. But of course, the, the, the deeper truth, the way out of that bag, 
uh, as the Bible and MLK, but also Lincoln understood, is, is to meet hate with love. That requires uh, as understanding and, and, and trying to break down those dualities that divide us. Um, uh, in, in a civil war, when people are trying to kill you, that's the hardest thing. But Lincoln is able to do that, and I think it is because he has a moral humility. He's got moral courage, but he never lets that slip into a sense of moral superiority. He's always thinking a couple of moves out. Um, and he knows because we've got to find a way to live together again, he's got a moral humility that balances his moral courage. Uh, and that makes all the difference. And, and that's the, the toughest quality. The way I, I summarize his politics is I, I talk about the politics of the golden rule. It's just something as, as, as profound and difficult and simple as that, treating yeah. other people like you'd like to be treated. And that logic can unlock a lot of hearts and minds if you, if you lean into it. And that's what he tried to do, even with the question of slavery, which seems so obvious today, but was not for a lot of folks then. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me stay on that for a second. Um, uh, and we'll move on to this other issue of depression mm-hmm. that I want to get to, because in that regard, he and King have something in common. We'll put a pin in that for mm-hmm. the moment. Um, but on this issue of empathy, I, I asked that question in part, John, because what is not often said, although you know it to be true, any scholar who's done their homework knows it to be true, even though we don't like to talk about it. Uh, Lincoln's a great president, but Lincoln starts out on the wrong side of the slavery question. If it's not for Frederick Douglass uh, talking to him and other incidences, um, who knows where Lincoln would have would have would have ended up. Um, but but there are certainly notable notable persons in history who started out on the wrong side of any number of equations and ended up on the right side. Bobby Kennedy being one of them, when he went yeah. down south and spent time with black people and poor people and saw the devastating impacts of poverty on the black poor. Bobby Kennedy had an awakening. This is the same guy who years prior had wiretapped Dr. King. So Bobby King ends up making a turn at some point. The same is true of Abraham Lincoln. He starts out on the wrong side of the slavery question, but ends up on the right side, thanks again to Frederick Douglass and others, and that empathy that we see in Lincoln eventually comes to the fore. What do you make very quickly here of his getting on the right side of the slavery issue? So a couple of things. First of all, you're exactly right to point out the role of Frederick Douglass and others. This is not a great man theory of history, right? Mm-hmm. Movements are built by a number of individuals who, through their courage are ab- and charisma, are able to, to build a mass movement. It's not about one person, let alone one president. Um, you know, Lincoln, you know, one thing to keep in mind about his political career, he's a man of his time. Mm-hmm. Let's not, you know, sure. sugarcoat that. But sure. He, he also, as a politician, as a public servant, as you would say, he's a single-issue politician. When he runs for Senate, after his one term in, in, in the House of Representatives, when he's, most thing he's famous for is that he argued against involvement in the Mexican-American War. Um, thought we were being sold a bill of goods, uh, which he wasn't wrong about. Um, uh, he, he, you know, he, he begins, you know, becomes a Republican and begins running for the Senate to stop the expansion of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a single-issue guy. Now, there you can cherry-pick quotes from, from debates in Southern Illinois and other things that show him to be a, a flawed man of his time. But he grows, right? He, he, for, he listen to the first inaugural address. He says, look, I'm just trying to stop the expansion of slavery. I don't think I have the ability as president constitutionally to end it. Mm-hmm. But then he sees the war. He's able to change public opinion over the course of the war, not just him and not just the other leaders you talk about. One of the things I talk about a lot in the book is the pivotal role that 180,000 black Union soldiers play in changing the meaning of the war and changing hearts and minds. And and this is something I'm real passionate about because their their role has been largely written out of history or diminished. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right? It's just the Massachusetts 54. That's no, right. it's not. 25, 25 black Union soldiers won the Medal of Honor, and we should be building statues of them across the country now. Um, and, and so, but Lincoln is able to harness that and, 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 and work the time, get the Emancipation Proclamation, realize it's not enough, push forward after his reelection for the 13th Amendment. And then when he's offered a, a, a ceasefire by the Confederates on the River Queen, he says no. He's, it, he knows it would be popular, but he's afraid it would sap out the, the resolve to focus on ratifying the 13th Amendment. And he says after the war's done and they've surrendered, you've got to ratify the 13th Amendment to end slavery for all time to enter back into the Union. So he's focused on the big picture. So he sees his opportunities. He evolves as true, but, but he is a single-issue you know, man when it comes to his political life, his electoral life. Yeah. I'm looking at my clock here. I've got news, traffic, and sports in about 90 seconds or so. So let me let me tell you um, where I, I want to go on the other side and sort of tee this up. So we mentioned MLK earlier. I mentioned it. You mentioned it. And there, mm-hmm. there are at least a few ways that King and MLK – um, uh, that King, that, that Lincoln rather, and MLK are forever, forever linked. Not the least of which, of course, is King's most famous speech is given at the Lincoln Memorial. That backdrop mm-hmm. of King delivering "I Have a Dream" with Abraham Lincoln seated, looking down on King and that crowd of over a quarter million people. They're linked there forever. Uh, mm-hmm. They're linked together forever because both of them were fighting for a peace, uh, trying to, to to win the peace. Uh, number two, number three, they're forever linked in a way that most people are unaware of and frankly don't talk about here. You come talking about the depression that Abraham Lincoln had to navigate his way through. And I want to come back to that. Why? Because King had the same fight. Um, people don't talk again about King's depression, but, uh, what King was enduring, uh, had him, uh, oftentimes in a depressed state. I've said to this audience any number of times, King is my hero. Of course, I regard him as the greatest American this country's ever produced. I could argue you on Lincoln about that, but King is my guy. Um, that said, uh, I, I've written a book about King, and I, I talk about his depression in that last year, especially after he comes out against the Vietnam War and the whole country, the cosmos, basically, shifts against Dr. King. His inner circle is trying to get him to see a therapist. Um, mm-hmm. But they know that if Hoover finds out he's seeing a therapist, Hoover will destroy him with that information. So King is battling depression. Abraham Lincoln is battling depression. We don't think of great leaders as having these kind of manic moments, and yet they do. And I want to interrogate that when we come forward with John Avalon and then talk more expressly about this plan that Lincoln had to fight the peace, to not just win the war, but to win. You do indeed, and we're glad to have you here on KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you tuned in to this conversation uh, that is uh, rich. Uh, It's a conversation with John Avalon of CNN, uh, their senior political analyst and anchor and author of the book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. We're talking in this hour uh, about not just winning the war, but winning the peace. Indeed, you can't do one without the other, uh, as John Avalon uh, downloaded for us earlier uh, in this conversation. Um, But I want to come expressly now to this issue of depression. Uh, that Abraham Lincoln had to battle and navigate his way through. Uh, Again, when we talk about Lincoln, it's always the heroics, but never the humanity of Abraham Lincoln. So we've talked already about his empathy. Now I want to talk about his depression. Uh, As John uh, mentioned MLK earlier, I came behind that and made the point that if you don't know this, MLK was dealing with depression himself. Uh, There are stories that I tell in, in my text about King uh, one day he was trying to leave the hotel room and the, the mania hit him so hard, John, when he got to the door, uh, fully dressed, he couldn't get out of the room. He goes back in the room, he 
falls out on the bed and he asks his staff to leave him alone and he cries and cries and cries and cries until he eventually falls asleep. But King was having any number of moments of mania, not to mention that he knew there was a bullet out there chasing him. Another way that King and Lincoln are forever connected, both assassinated. But specifically, uh, watching my time here, tell me about the depression that Lincoln had to navigate his way through as he was fighting uh, for a just and lasting peace after the Civil War. First of all, I want to say what you said about not just the heroism, but the humanity is so right. And and it seems to me that our, our heroes become greater when we understand them as human. We take them off the pedestal. Mm-hmm. It makes their wisdom more accessible. It means that you know we, we can aspire to learn from them, not from a distance, but a little closer to eye to eye, as they saw themselves in the mirror, as their colleagues and contemporaries saw them. That's an important part of any history. Um, Lincoln, you know, I think always had battled depression. There are stories in his youth. Um, he, he thought himself a failure at age 40. He had only a single term in Congress underneath him. He felt a call towards destiny. He felt a call uh, towards trying to help his fellow human. And uh, word that he'd come up short. And all of a sudden, he's catapulted into the presidency. 1862 is the worst year of the war and the worst year of Lincoln's life. Uh, he and Mary lose their son, Willie, their beloved middle son, in the White House at the age of 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And this causes Mary to, to, to spiral into a deep depression, probably exacerbated, uh, her erratic behavior exacerbated by, by treatments at the time. So Lincoln is left even more alone, as his wife frequently is, is lashing out. There's a, a moment I talk about in, in the book where um, the Union suffers a terrible defeat at Fredericksburg, and his friend Isaac N. Arnold, a congressman from Chicago, Illinois, comes up to, to visit Lincoln. He'd known him before the war mm-hmm. to see how he's doing. And he goes and knocks on the front door, and they let him in upstairs to the second floor, which you could do in those days. And he sees Lincoln by the fireplace, and he's reading a small book, and he's laughing. And Isaac and Arnold is, is furious about this at his friend. And he lays into him and says, how can you laugh at a time like this? And in his memoir, he recounts how Lincoln looks up at him and with tears welling up in his eyes, throws the book on the ground, which is a book of his favorite humorist, a guy named Artemis Ward, and says, don't you know that if I could not find a way to make myself laugh, my heart would break and I could not do my job. Mm-hmm. And that, that's when he realized that the humor, the constant joke telling and storytelling that Lincoln was known for in his time was, was really a form of self-medication. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, 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 the, you know, and, and he told stories to prove a point, something he learned from the Bible and Aesop. He told it all the time, and some people thought he wasn't serious enough given the gravity of the war. But that was a way of releasing steam and trying to make a point. Another thing that jumped out to me that you'll appreciate is Lincoln was seen occasionally in the midst of a depression going into the other room and reading the book of Job and emerging oddly comforted. Mm. which I found that phrase, oddly comforted. Mm. And that was about Lincoln's belief that there had to be a plan. Even when the war seemed overwhelming, even when he was feeling overwhelmed by his emotions, you had to keep going forward. And that's why in the second inaugural, he has an Old Testament vision of the war as God's punishment for the collective punishment for the original sin of slavery. And none of us were in control how long the war would go. And the last paragraph that everybody knows, that's the pivot to New Testament leadership, mm-hmm. a vision of life after death. And, but it's only through you go through that valley that you get to the top. And, and so that's a profound part of, of Lincoln's life and his journey um, that doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. 
Well, if the book of Job can't steal your nerves, nothing will. <laughs> it is, if the story of Job's comeback doesn't pump you up, then I don't know. I, I ain't got nothing for you because that is uh, that is one of those stories that uh, if you know it uh, and if you believe it, as I do, it's one of those stories that will, uh, will, will, will bounce you back every single time. If you did it for Job, he can do it for you. I was with a friend of mine yesterday. We were walking and we were quoting uh, the words of one of my favorite songs. Uh, it is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others. He can do for you with arms wide open. He'll pardon you. There is no secret about what God can do. I digress on that point, but the book of Job uh, is all that and then some. Uh, I made the connection between Abraham Lincoln and MLK. Let me go now to Abraham Lincoln and Nelson Mandela. And I come to Mandela now because I said earlier, there are any number of future presidents who are inspired by Lincoln and his fight for peace, including Mandela and, uh, and, and Gandhi and, and MLK, who we discussed earlier. But it is, it is this desire for revenge that so many of us have um, that I want to explore uh, now and get you to extrapolate because Mandela uh, was able to deal with whatever desire for revenge he may have had in his part, had it had in his heart, that is, uh, he dealt with it. And whatever desire for revenge Lincoln may have had in his heart as he fought for the peace, he did away with it. He dealt with it. Talk to me about how at the highest levels, um, the president of, the, of these United States um, can effectively deal with that desire for revenge against the Confederacy. The key thing is that we got to rise above our divisions to really make peace. You got to rise above that very human, natural feeling of revenge. Someone punches you. Someone tries to kill you. Oh, yeah. Someone kills your brother. You want revenge. Mm-hmm. But you get closer to God, and, and, and I mean that in a, in a, in a way of aspiration, not mm-hmm. assumption. Sure, sure. Um, when you find a way as a leader to rise above that, and by the way, that can be incredibly unpopular, because people want revenge. Mm-hmm. They simultaneously want peace and revenge. And they'll, they'll, some <laughs> of them will be willing to sue for a cheap peace, yeah. which won't last. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you've got to be able to do both things, and that's one of the things I think that's so extraordinary about Lincoln's uh, legacy. You know, if you look at the Great Seal of the United States, symbolically, it's right there. There's the eagle, and he's got arrows in one talon and olive branches in the other. Mm. And the point is, you achieve peace through strength. You got to have the, it's not enough to have the olive branches, that intention of pursuing peace. You got to have the, the arrows. And so Lincoln is determined to win the war in such a way that the South will have to accept defeat. And then, Put together, put to bed these questions of secession and even slavery. But then he wants to be magnanimous to lift it up. That requires getting over revenge, because there's a lot of people, including his own radical Republicans at the time, who want revenge. Mm-hmm. They don't think Lincoln's going to be tough enough. Um, and, and, and he's already pulling together this, this vision of, of, of how you win a peace. Uh, and it involves reconciliation. Now, there, there is punishment to be meted out, but not making martyrs of people through mass executions. Mm. He's conscious of that. Mm. Um, he, he wants to make sure that the people who knew better, the rank and file who got misled, you know, they, they should not be held accountable as much as the people who were in positions of power who knew better who seceded, who perpetuated the slave state. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, he did not want them to get their power and their political power and their land back, which ultimately they did far too fast with the black codes that were passed as early as the summer and fall of 1865. Um, 
you asked about the Mandela connection, and mm-hmm. it's this idea of reconciling leadership, sure. which is about not being locked into ideology or dogma, but being able to think bigger, to think beyond that cause and effect, that reaction uh, uh, of revenge. And there's a there's a, a quote that jumped out to me. Mandela quotes Lincoln a number of times. MLK quotes Lincoln all the time. Sure. Very, you know. Um, Mandela was eulogized by one of his greatest biographers, a guy named John Carlin, who wrote the book Playing the Enemy, which I highly recommend. It became the movie Invictus, which is a mm-hmm. less good movie than it is book. But Carlin was, uh, wrote a eulogy for Mandela when he died, and he called him Africa's Lincoln. And I pulled up the quote because I think it's so profound. The big truth is that Mandela, he writes, like Lincoln, achieved the historically rare feat of uniting a fiercely divided country. The feat is rare because what ordinary politicians have always done is seek power by highlighting differences and fueling antagonisms. Mandela sought it by appealing to people's common humanity. And that's all right, then, you know, that's what reconciling mm-hmm. leaders do. Mm-hmm. They rise above tribal divides by focusing mm-hmm. on our common humanity. They restore harmony by confronting contradictions with the goal of making a divided system whole and consistent. And they move forward with an absence of malice, yeah. secure in the belief that, that right makes might, ultimately. And what Lincoln does, but that's what all those great leaders you've mentioned do as well, um, you know, including Mandela, yeah. archetypally, but, but also MLK. Yeah, they were, they were all able um, to, to, to reconcile uh, and to reunite, as you put it earlier. Um, when we come forward, um, you used a phrase earlier that I, I've been noodling since you um, uttered it, John Avalon, and I want to get you to sort of... Uh, uh, unpack it for me, and that is the phrase "a magnanimous peace." That what Lincoln was after ultimately was a magnanimous peace. I know the words, I know what they mean, but when you put those two things together, uh, it takes on a whole new meaning for me. That I want to uh, uh, take your temperature on when we come forward. John Avalon's book is called "Lincoln and the Fight for Peace." You're listening to John Avalon right now on KBLA Talk. 15. Continuing now with our guest, uh, John Avalon, CNN senior political analyst, anchor there as well, and author of the book Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Earlier in this conversation, uh, John Avalon, you used this phrase magnanimous peace, and it sort of jumped out at me because uh, on one level, peace is peace. And if there's peace, uh, we can all get along. But you didn't stop there. You said that what Lincoln was after uh, in his effort to secure a just and lasting peace after the Civil War was what you termed a magnanimous piece. Um, unpack that for me. Sure. Well, just let's start with that phrase Lincoln used that you've come to uh, a few times, just and lasting peace. Mm-hmm. That implies that a peace will not last unless it is just. Mm-hmm. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict, right? Mm-hmm. It's the presence of, of justice. And, and, and that's one of the things that makes it lasting. Save too, you know, in, in, in for wartime presidents, and Lincoln has this paradoxical quality of being a man of peace in his marrow. He is a man of peace. He had a genius for peace. Um, but he was a president, a wartime president, for virtually all the days of his presidency. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, one of the classic ways you win a war is by sheer brutality, right? You know, you, you salt the fields. Of, of, of your enemy. You make it so they can't plant crops again. You, you rip up their civilization from the roots. But what Lincoln understands is, particularly in a civil war, that that's not sufficient. You have to find a way to live together again. And so this magnanimous peace is important. What does it mean? It means 
a certain generosity of spirit, making sure that people are treated fairly. That doesn't mean having no structures where they can simply backslide to their old ways. No, they've got to accept defeat. But you're careful not to seed more resentment. Mm -hmm. You need to be careful to try to harness their energy in a common direction. You need to invest in economic development. Um, You need to rebuild them on a stable basis with liberal democracy while removing the root cause. You know, they've got to rewrite their state constitution so there's no slavery. They've got, they got to give up any idea that there's a right to secession. Um, but then you've got, you got to treat them fairly. And when you do that, you know, what Lincoln believes, this politics of the golden rule, the rarest thing we have in our politics today, it, he believes that decency can be the most practical form of politics. Mm. But he knows that people are more likely to listen to reason when they're greeted from a position of strength. Mm. And so that's what that balance is about, that wise balance. And, and, and that's what he pursues. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that the, the inverse, uh, uh, the converse of a magnanimous piece is a cheap piece. And you referenced mm-hmm. that earlier as well. Lincoln, uh, you suggested, did not want to settle for a cheap mm-hmm. piece. What would, that, what, what would that have looked like? What would a cheap piece have, uh, have uh, looked like? <laughs> so he, he goes and negotiates, uh, 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 meets with a, a group of Confederates, leading cabinet, Confederate cabinet members on the River Queen, which was the presidential steamship, like the Aquatic Air Force One. And, and he, he presents them with three indispensable conditions for peace. Um, uh, the, you know, no resumption of the Union, no right to secession, end of slavery for all time, no ceasefire before surrender. They say, hey, let's have a ceasefire. Let's, let's, let's have a ceasefire, accept us as a sovereign nation, and then we'll invade Mexico together and we'll unite against a common enemy. And he laughs him out of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, the point is that he knows a ceasefire would be incredibly popular. But if you didn't have unconditional surrender, that popularity would create a counterfeit peace, a cheap peace, because there would all the political will to end slavery for all time would evaporate. People would focus on reconciliation at the expense of emancipation. Mm. And at the same time, he's already buffeting against the calls for revenge from within his own cabinet. And, you know, one of the great speeches of this era was actually given by Frederick Douglass 10 years later at the dedication of a statue to Lincoln, yes. which still stands in Washington, D.C. And, and, and he explains this sort of middle path that Lincoln followed, you know, how he balances moral courage with moderation as a matter of temperament, not a determination to achieve great goals. He says... Douglas says, and he's the keynote speaker, by the way, with the President of the United States, Elizabeth Grant, and all the members of the Supreme Court standing there watching Douglas. And Douglas offers this valedictory. He said, seen from a genuinely abolitionist ground, Abraham Lincoln could seem tardy, cool, and indifferent. But seen from the perspective of a statesman who was bound by honor to consult his constituents, he was zealous, determined, and radical. Mm. That, to me, is so profound from Douglas, and I think that, that, that it captures that wise balance while always moving forward that Lincoln was pursuing. Yeah. Um, tell me about the ways in which Lincoln uh, refused to, uh, to be uh, uh, cowed by uh, this effort uh, to uh, advance reconciliation over emancipation. I love how you put that. Uh, clearly, he fought against that, that pull, I, should, I can put it that way. How did you fight against that pull, John? Well, first of all, we lost that pull, right? I mean, yeah. that, that was the cheap piece that was ultimately pursued. Andrew Johnson, who succeeds him, I'd describe as the anti-Lincoln, because he's the opposite of him in terms of character. He is not a reformer or a reconciler. He is alternately radical and reactionary. Um, 
and and he is i found a quote from a magazine the atlantic magazine at the time that described him as being vain and ill-tempered egotistic to the point of mental disease <laughs> and he was susceptible to flattery and so he just had all the confederate landowners come and ask for amnesty and he granted it to him he pulled the black troops out of the south for fear of offending uh... white southerners he allowed the black codes to go forward which was basically slavery without the chains mm-hmm. almost immediately um, Lincoln, I think, you know, and you can just tell as a lawyer, his commitment to equal justice under law, um, that, that he would not have allowed that backsliding to occur. He, he believed that you needed to have different states proceed at different paces because people needed to feel that ownership. He has a letter where he says it will take some time for blacks and whites to live themselves out of their old relations with each other. Mm-hmm. But as long as you set the clear constructs and then enforce the law, that's the key bit that could be achieved. Um, in the absence of that, you get vigilante gangs, you get white terrorist organizations like the KKK. Yeah. And, and how you less is S. Grant pushes that back as a story for another day, but a really important milestone yeah. in, in American history, a forgotten lesson. So he, he would not have allowed that cheap piece, that backsliding to continue, nor would he. Well, he was also conscious of the fact that if the radicals pushed too far too fast, it would court backlash. Yeah. You know, that the whole thing that, you know, the quickest path to tyranny is through anarchy, sure. that you've got to, got to avoid that pendulum swing. You've got to slow it. And that's part of a magnanimous lasting peace while being true to great principles. And one of which is, and this is another thing that King and, and Lincoln share, that reorienting America back towards the promissory note of the Declaration of Independence, mm. not getting hung up on some of the legalisms and the constitutional interpretations of the time. No, I love it. Uh, I'm watching my clock here. Now we are down to a CNN segment, three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll wrap this. Um, I, don't mean, I don't mean to make you political. I know what you do at CNN, but I want to ask this anyway, because it seems a question that one should ask of an author <laughs> about a book about Lincoln. Um, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, it's, and it's worth remembering this, that the Republican Party was only six years old at at, at, at during Lincoln's ascent. Uh, the GOP is only six years old then. Uh, but the GOP, all these years later, uh, uh, still, you know, put Lincoln forward as their best example uh, when it comes to presidencies. Maybe, I don't know, these days he may be behind Reagan. But anyway, Lincoln's on the list of those who they trot out all the time. I'm curious as to what you think Lincoln would think of them. We know what they think of him in this moment. What would he think of them? You know, uh, you know, there's an old line from Mark Twain about how history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it's rhymes. Yeah. And so a lot of this is to listen for the rhyme. Yeah. You've got to remember that Lincoln's Republican Party was a moderate progressive party of its time. It was a big tent party dedicated to stopping the expansion of slavery. That's what united all the forces. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not for nothing that after, you know, a hundred years later, after Lyndon Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, that the solid South flips Republican for the first time in a hundred years. Yep. Um, so you got to pay attention to those cause effects yeah. and that shifting map. The, the whole debate around constitutional liberty being used to excuse slavery, even in Lincoln's time, and he talks about the, the Wolf's Dictionary, how these words can be manipulated to, according to self-interest, and we've got to come to real meaning. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, you don't want to use the, the – you want to keep morally humble and not apply the, the labels of our time, but also not to get sure. distracted by them. Look at the underlying principles, and you can see clear to, to, to a lot of the, uh, the, the, the things that history tells us, what's on the right side of history, align yourself with those forces. His name is John Avalon. Uh, of course, you know that already. CNN, senior political analyst and anchor and author of the book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. It is a groundbreaking, revelatory history of Abraham Lincoln's uh, fight, as I said a few times, to secure a just 
uh, and lasting peace. Um, again, one of the rare books to look at what Lincoln's um, end of name was post the Civil War, not pre, not during, but post. And I have enjoyed immensely, not just the text, but indeed the conversation. John Avalon, good to have you on, my friend. All the best to you, sir. Tavis, it's been an honor. Thanks, man. Appreciate my, it. My great pleasure. Our three of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports, you are listening to Unapologetically Progressive KBLA Talk 1580.